Welcome to the Community of Hope Church podcast. Our church exists to interest disinterested people in Jesus Christ and then grow together into fully devoted followers of Him. So wherever you are, we hope you find this message helpful, practical, and applicable to your life. God bless. I want to encourage you to grab your notes, grab your Bible, grab your journal. We're going to start. We're going to dive right in. We are starting a new series today. We're calling it Who Cares? Say that with me. Who Cares? Now say it like in a real stinky way. Who Cares? Like, who cares? And that's really what I want us to think about because, in fact, I was thinking of it this way. Let me just see if you can uh, recite this, if you have this from memory. So John three sixteen for God so world that he that whosoever, wow, go community of hope, great, great. And what about this one? Um, he's got the whole, he's got the whole world in his, he's got the whole wide world in his, awesome. He got the little bitty bit. You, you probably knew I was going to do that, right? Um, so what, what did John 3.16, and he's got the whole world in his hands have in common? They have this, the world. But let me ask you an existential question. Do you ever wonder? I mean, like right now, does the world feel a bit like a dumpster fire right now? I was sharing in the earlier service that it feels like when we've reached the probably the pinnacle of crazy, do you feel like the world shifts into another gear and just goes crazy all over again? Uh, many of us are horrified. That's the only word I can really describe it. Horrified that we're watching what's happening in the Ukraine. And I just feel like sometimes, um, I, I want you to know, I believe God loves the world, and I believe he's got the world in his hands. I, I don't want, you know, I was thinking, I don't want you to misunderstand me and think that, okay, you've come for, you know, Christian hope, and you, you're navigating, you know, Christians and, uh, Christianity's answer, and, and, and the guy that's supposed to help you navigate that doesn't sound very sure. Um, that's not true. I actually believe it. But here's what I want you to know. You have friends who wonder. You have friends who wonder. And you have family members who may question. And every now and again, if we're honest, and this is really what I always think about a space like this, I want us to be honest, we will see something in the world sometimes and we'll just say, okay, God, I've shared with you my, my common phrase that sometimes that I don't even think it's conscious. I think it's almost unconscious when I sometimes see what's going on in the world. I've shared with you before, I'll just look at something and I'll go, Lord, in your mercy. And I don't know about you, but in the last several years, right, I feel like there's just a lot of different things and my own friendship circle and my own family circle and in the world, greater world, and I just go, Lord, in your mercy. And there are a lot of people who are asking these questions. And so I, I think that this is an appropriate thing for us to look at. In fact, um, you know, we often say at Community of Hope, we'll point to a verse of Scripture. It's, a, it's an observation Jesus made one day in a particularly rough season with the disciples. And in, 
And in uh, John chapter uh, 16, verse 33, I think we'll show it on the screen, it says this, I've told you these things, he's talking to the disciples, so that uh, in you, uh, that in me you may have peace, for in this world, notice, you will have trouble. Not like you might. Every now and again, you might bump in. He says, you will have trouble, but take good heart because I have overcome the world. Well, this morning, what I want to do, and this weekend, what I want to do, is I want to introduce you to another verse that's very similar, but it's, a, it's different enough that we thought maybe we should focus on it. And it's, a, it's an observation, not that Jesus made, but an observation that one of his you know, high-profile, uh, highly visible followers, disciples uh, made uh, in, in a letter that he wrote to the churches in Rome and Corinth. And he said this, Paul says this, we'll throw this on the screen. And I want us to read this out loud together. We're going to read this one. Ready? Go. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Now, here's what I want you to know. Lots of opinions out there about God. When you and I leave this morning and we go back out into the world here in just a few moments, you're gonna run into a, a culture that has all kinds of opinions about this God that you've just come into this place and worshiped this morning. And what I wanna tell you is that Paul had some observations. He had some opinions too. And I want you to notice his opinion. He calls the God that we've just worshiped the father of compassion. And when I see that, he's not just saying, I think he's not just saying that the God we've worshiped is compassionate. Here's what I think he's saying. He's created compassion. He's the father He's the progenitor. He's the creator of compassion. Then Paul says this. Notice he says, he's the God of all comfort. Not just the God of comfort. He's the God of all comfort. And I think that's pretty distinctive. And then, and then he goes further. Notice what he says. He is the God who comforts us in all our troubles. He uses that word again. All. But what I want you to notice and what we're going to focus on in this series is this last observation. Because he says, this is the God who comforts us in our troubles. Look at this. So that we can comfort others. Part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is that we would, we would, we would learn to live a kind of life that is that is developing receptivity, receptors to receive the comfort of God and then that we manifest that comfort out to the greater world. We receive, we give. We receive, we give. And this is what I want us to look at um, for a few moments. I was sharing last week because it was, we're coming up on Ash Wednesday. This is the first Sunday in the season of Lent. And I was sharing at nine o'clock. I said, for those of you that don't know what Lent is, it's not the stuff that gets stuck in your belly button. <laughs> Let me just call that out. Okay. That is a particular kind of Lent, not the Lent we're talking about. Uh, Lent, the Lenten season is, I've shared before, the 40 days, not including Sundays prior to Easter, 
uh, that, that helps us focus on the compassionate work of Jesus at loose in the world. Most Christian churches take the season of Lent, and we do at Community of Hope, and we try to we try to look at what is distinctive about the life of Jesus. What, is, what did he live? What did he model? What did he exemplify? What did he point to? What did he call out? What did he over and over and over again manifest? And how do I do that with my life? And what we often say, community of hope, is we want to do that every year. We want to remember this tremendous sacrifice. We're going to remember it in a moment with what's on the altar. We're going to remember this sacrifice that God has given to us and that it cost him all this great price and he offers it to us for free. And, and I think that if we, if we kind of take a deep dive in, in the Lenten season around that, by the time we get to Easter community of hope, man, it, we just blow the roof off this place because we've, we've not ignored what it cost him to get there. Does that make sense? And so I was thinking about, um, a value that if I were to talk about God's compassion, uh, manifested to the world, if I was going to talk about uh, what I think is the greatest act of compassion we'll ever see. I thought of a verse of scripture that I want to read to you this morning. And um, I don't know that I've ever preached on th- these three stories that I want to read to you, all of them together. And I want to do it today. And there's a theme. And I want to ask you to listen to as I'm reading this and see if you can pick up on the theme and we're in Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Okay, so here's, here's Luke's story that he's going to tell about Jesus. He said, now, the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So everybody's clamoring around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners. And not only does he welcome sinners, he eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. So suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. He goes home. He calls his friends and neighbors together. And he says, hey, hey, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Or, he says, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, doesn't she call her friends and neighbors together and say, hey, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one one day came to his father and he said, hey, father, uh, give me my share of the estate. I want it now. And so his father divided his property between his two sons, gave the the younger one his share. And not long after that, the younger son got all together, all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered quickly his wealth and wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there became a severe famine in that 
whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Now he longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am out here just starving to death. And I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you. And to be honest, I'm no longer even worthy, really, to be called your son. So maybe would you make me like one of your hired servants? And so he got up and he went to his father. But while, this is so awesome, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and and he kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned. I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against you. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, Quick, you bring me the best robe and you put it on him. You put a ring on his finger. You put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Let's kill it. And let's have a feast. And let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost. And is found. And so they began to celebrate. So this is a part of the story where Jesus is most likely at the height of his popularity. Uh, Everywhere he went at this particular point in his ministry, I think people were crowding around him. News was spreading. More people were coming. All this stuff was happening. And at the same, very same time, uh, like right off nearby all of this phenomenal activity, There's a group of naysayers. There's always a group of naysayers. And uh, they're wrestling with everything that Jesus is doing. On the one hand, is teaching. Uh, He's teaching and modeling for people what's at the heart of a genuine relationship with God. And this teaching and modeling has placed him at odds with religious people who have their power and their own agenda as the thing most important. It's a rough place to be, and you... You see the story bearing itself out in this kind of push and pull kind of way. Uh, All these people are following him and his words are cutting like a knife to the hypocritical religious society. In fact, just the chapter prior to this, Luke, who's the only Gentile of the gospel writers, gives us all this extra material to think about. He, he He tells the story leading up to this one that we just read about Jesus accepting an invitation into the home of a Pharisee. But it says, while all that was going on, he was being carefully studied and watched. So there's like there's a fork in the road. And Jesus, uh, in this space, um, he does something quite amazing. And, and as a communicator myself, I notice these things. So maybe it just pops out to me, but... 
But there's all this activity moving in this one direction. And then it's almost as though all of a sudden Jesus stops, pivots, and he tries another way. And the way is this. He goes for the heart. Rather than challenging, there's been a lot of challenge. You can read it in Luke. But then in Luke 15, we get to verse 51. And it's like he turns it all around and he starts to just riff and tell these stories that are filled with all this pathos and filled with all this emotion. And Jesus says that any longer it feels like going for instruction, he's going for heart. And this is what he's doing. And he goes for the heart, but he goes at, goes at it in a unique way. And he's not challenging about right or wrong, he, though he could, right? He's not talking about good or bad, and he could. Do you notice what he does? He talks about lost and found. He switches. Which, which is something I want us all to understand. If you're streaming online, if you're in the room, here's what I want you to understand. So lost is a thing. It's a real thing. Anybody ever lose something? It's a thing, right? Uh, I am the one in my own family uh, who is probably the one, little inside joke, I'm the one who loses stuff. <laughs> I know that's shocking to everybody in the room. Uh, I'm not, I want to be clear, because if, if you're going to say stuff about me this week, I want you to say the right thing about me this week, okay? Um, I am not messy. I'm actually not. I'm not disorganized. But I do lose things. Um, when Beth and I were first dating, and it was getting serious, and uh, we were at seminary together, and she, she was actually the RA in, a, in the girls' dorm, and I lived in the single guys' dorm with a couple other dudes, and and uh, one day there's a knock on the door. She, she, we, would, we would date, we would go out, and it was not uncommon when we would go out, I, I would first have to find my keys, right? And so she showed up one day and knocked on the door. My roommate opened the door, and Beth just barged right in, and she had this thing that she just stuck in the wall. And she goes, when you get back from wherever you are, why don't you put your keys on this? And it was super bossy. In fact, it, and it just content, not the bossy part. I want to be clear about that. I want to hear about that later. It, I just continued to not really do the key thing right. A few years ago for Christmas, I think it was only two years ago, Haley and Brandon bought me this thing that you could charge. Maybe you've seen it and you can put, it, uh, put a thing in your wallet, looks like a credit card, and put a thing on your key ring. And then if you lose it, you can find it. And I'm embarrassed to tell you, before I could charge it and put it in the wall, I lost it. And my daughter was like, you're a special kind of case, Dad. And, and I, 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 I'm starting to be like oversensitive to it and uh, around this thing. And then I rem remembered why I think I'm oversensitive to it. I, I shared last week, my dad was a career Nabisco guy. And I shared last week, he was also a Chevy guy. Remember when I shared that story? And, and my dad, part of his deal, every two years, he got a new car. He got a company car. So every two years, like clockwork, my dad would come tooling up into our driveway with a brand new Chevy. Usually it was a Chevy Impala. He'd pile us all in and we'd go for a drive around town. It was awesome. We just, it was the coolest thing. And then when I got to be driving age, 
Um, there comes that moment before you get your own car that you're trying to work up the courage to ask your dad to borrow his car, right? And there was this moment, and I don't know how you, you, you fellas did it. Here's how I did it, and my brothers did it. We would watch for my dad to come home from work, and we would all gauge which dad was actually coming home <laughs> from work. And so if he got out of the car and he had a bounce in his step, we'd go, we got it. And if he pulled up, sometimes he'd go, yeah, I'm not going to ask this week. I'm going to let it go. And so one day, my dad had the new car. I remembered it was maroon. It was a Chevy Impala. And I worked up the courage. I asked him if I could take my girlfriend out on a date. And my dad said, yes. And so I took her out on a date. We went to dinner. We went to a movie. And I come out after the movie, and I can't find the car. I'm not making this up. And you know, there's guys, you know what it's like. There's this awkward moment and, and you're trying to be cool for the lady. And inside you're kind of, to be honest, you're about to pee your pants, honestly. It's, I'm just going to say that right here. And it's just this awkward moment. And we're walking all around the parking lot. And I said, I mean, I mean, honestly, this is where we parked. Isn't this where we parked? And she goes, I think it's where we parked, you know? <laughs> And then right before I thought, I'm going to have to call my dad, the car's been stolen. I look on the other side of the parking lot, and the car is on the other side of the parking lot. And my dad had driven my mom over in their Ford Falcon station wagon and moved the car. (laughs) I kid you not. And while I am walking around the parking lot looking for the car, my dad and my mom are having ice cream in the ice cream shop watching the whole darn thing. I sent him every therapy bill for that. It's on you. But here's what I want to tell you. I wonder sometimes... When God looks at the world and he looks at you and me, what if he doesn't see right and wrong? I mean, we see it. What if he doesn't see good and bad? What if he sees lost and found? When I was a young follower of Jesus, somebody recommended to me that I read a book. It was called um, Your God is Too Small by J.B. Phillips. And the main premise of the book is he said that most of us, our opinion, our view, our idea really of God is not square with the full picture of the biblical narrative. And he said that most of us view God as a benevolent, absent-minded grandfather a cosmic Santa Claus, or listen to this one. This is probably the most popular. A resident policeman. But you know, a strange thing. When I read the Bible, that's not the picture I actually get. Um, I read the Bible, and I run across verses like this. Psalm 103. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquity. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear the Lord, which is a way to say respect him. For as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed his, our transgressions from us. And as a father, listen to this, has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He knows how we're formed. He remembers we're dust. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, we, we teach it in the kids' rooms. One day Jesus is walking through Jericho and he looks up in a sycamore tree and he sees a man. Remember him? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man. Was he? Climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And Jesus says, come down. I'm having dinner at your house. And all the Pharisees went, you can't have dinner at his house. He's a sinner. And then listen to this, Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man, Jesus said, has come to seek and save the lost. I take a lot of, I take a lot of emotion that when the Lord looks at me, maybe he doesn't see right and wrong and good and bad. Maybe still he sees the parts of me that are still getting found. Lost is a thing. Can I tell you something else? If lost is a thing, found is a thing. Sort of interesting right now in our world, um, Barna Group says 97% of the people who self-identify as followers of Jesus believe that part of following Jesus would be that we would be ready to give a reason for the hope that lives within us. And a recent statistic I read said that almost half of millennials think it's wrong to share our faith with someone else with the idea that they may adopt our faith. as almost sharing our faith is not a good thing. Evangelism isn't a good thing. Pastor and writer and author John Tyson says this. He says, you're believing a lie if you think people in our culture aren't trying to convert you to other things. Advertisers are trying every day to convert you to buy their stuff. University professors are trying to convert you to their worldview. Politicians are trying to convert you to their political party. The real question is, isn't do we live in an age when conversion is still practiced? The real question may be, is it good news they're converting you to? I've never been offended when somebody's tried to help me find something that was lost. 
Lost is a thing. Found is a thing. Um, I'll say this real quickly. As a Bible nerd, I've studied over the years what I, I just call them breakout movements in God's redemptive story is love affair of the world. I, I think of the overshadowing of Jesus coming in the Old Testament. I think of his birth. I think of the birth of the church in Acts 2, the Reformation in the 16th century, the Wesley revival and the Great Awakening. In the 70s, there was a movement, some of you will remember it, that started in Campus Crusade. And Bill Bright and crew started a movement called simply, I Found It. Remember that? Uh, My brother, my older brother, was radically saved in that movement. And it swept through our whole family. Show you a picture of a guy that you may know, you may not know, John Newton. He was a mean, vicious, angry, hateful slave trader. He was the worst kind of human being. And on March 10th, actually, March 10th, 1748, 274 years ago this week, he became a Christ follower and spent the rest of his life trying to abolish the slave trade that made him rich. He gave his life, and he began to describe. The only way he could describe what happened to him is this, and you know it. He said, I was lost, and now I'm what? Found. And he wrote a hymn. We sing it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. was blind, but now I see. So my prayer as we close is that you would um, open your heart, that we would lean in on learning about God's compassion manifest toward you. And then what would it look like to be a church, to be a people that in fresh ways, new ways, compelling ways, is manifesting the compassion of Jesus to a world that's lost its way. And God is praying it gets found. Lord, I pray over my friends, and I pray, oh God, that you might help us in this. Lord, and I pray especially for anybody listening in this message or here this morning that might think that that's them. They're, they're lost. They're far from you. And I pray, Jesus, that you would draw them in, that you would remind them even now you're scanning the horizon, ready to manifest your compassion toward them. Thank you, Lord, that you've done that for many of us in this place. Would you teach us how to do that and be to partner with you in the world to do that even better? This we pray in the strong and mighty name of Jesus and everyone said, amen. Go in his mercy, his mercy, and we'll see you next weekend. Amen.